Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, what a beautiful, beautiful day to gather and worship the Lord. It, uh, it was beautiful out. Uh, Friday night, my son and I had a chance to visit family and then go to the Lions preseason game and then drive home in a horrible thunderstorm. And it was kind of scary. So it's great to see the sun. And it was great to see the Lions win. So that's only preseason. Anyways, have you ever been talking to someone about God and they said, you know what, if God would show me a sign, if he would just show me right here, then I would believe. And there are times when I hear that, I say, well, would you? Would you believe? There's so much evidence for God and for Christ. Would they truly believe? In fact, even just this book. This book was written over a period of 1,500 years by around 40 authors on three different continents in three different languages and yet tells one congruent story of who God is and what He has accomplished. There are so many evidences out there. You look at the historical evidences for Jesus, His death, and even His resurrection. Seeing the 12 disciples martyred, 11 of the 12 martyred and one exiled for their faith, unwilling to recant what they truly saw. See, oftentimes miracles don't necessarily cause people to believe. And today we're going to look at God demonstrate His power through 11 miracles. The first in a showdown and the second, the next 10 in plagues. And God demonstrated this and in the midst of it, even with those clear signs, Pharaoh and Moses, or so Pharaoh, Pharaoh and most of the Egyptians rejected God. So what would God have to do to get you to believe in him? If he told you, showed you a sign, would that be enough? Let's pray. God, Heavenly Father, sovereign creator of all things, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things. Lord, we know that maybe there's someone in this room or someone listening online that says, I don't have enough evidence today. I have not seen enough things to know that God is real and is who He says He is. Lord, I pray through this message that You will open their eyes through the Holy Spirit, open their heart to the truth that You are the Lord and that You are sovereign. And Lord, we pray that as we open Your Word that it will move in our hearts and minds. In Your name we pray. Amen. When Exodus 7, God outlines what He is about to do. He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to perform many signs and wonders. He's going to judge Egypt and bring out the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that he is Yahweh. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time today, we've been looking through the life of Moses. And the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. And they were were beaten and they were given these tedious, hard tasks that were impossible to do. And Moses came to confront Pharaoh to say, let my people go. But those words were from God. Ultimately, it was a showdown between Yahweh, the creator of all things, the sovereign God of the universe, and Pharaoh, maybe the most powerful man in the world at that point in time, considered by the Egyptians to be a god, and someone who believed the 80 deities that they followed in Egypt were more powerful than this god that the Israelites followed. 
So as a believer, we know who's going to win, but the Egyptians don't. They spent their whole life worshiping these different deities. And it's worked up until this point. The nation has become very prosperous. It seems like the gods are looking down on them with favor. The Israelites, frankly, don't even know who's going to win either. Their years of enslavement, their years of being beaten had led them to doubt Yahweh, had led them to points where they were angry with Moses and angry with God that he would come and make their life harder. And so as these things happen, God is going to show the Israelites and the Egyptians who he is. Now, we traditionally call this the ten plagues. And so when you think about that, really the word used in Hebrew is miracles. And we have more than ten. There's an eleventh one, and the eleventh one is a precursor to all the rest of them. It's the showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. And Aaron threw down his staff, and it became a snake. And now this would have been a really important thing, but the magicians, through their secret magic, now some people think these magicians were just like those guys on America's Got Talent. Um, there's, there's people that think that, you know, there was a way to paralyze a snake. So they're holding a snake like a staff and then they threw it down and it became a snake. But somehow these magicians were able to replicate exactly what Aaron did. Now, I think it truly is the power of Satan that they were able to do that. And so they replicate it and the magicians throw down three snakes. But what happens? Well, Aaron's snake, he eats the other three snakes, proving that Yahweh was more powerful, and yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and would not listen to him. Now, the significance of that first sign is if you look at the Pharaoh's headdress, and you'll see those things in a lot of different places, the, the snake was this very esteemed thing. The, it represented the goddess Wadjet, often described as being half lady, half cobra. And Wadjik was the protector of Pharaoh and was said to spit venom at anyone who threatened Pharaoh. So the serpent on, the, on, Moses, or on the Pharaoh's head would have been the symbol of power, authority, and also symbol that Pharaoh himself was a god. And so here we have this showdown between Yahweh and these 80 deities. Now, as you read the different plagues, it's important to note that each of these plagues attacked different deities of the Egyptians. The first two were around the Nile. And so the Nile was this major avenue of the worship of the Egyptians. The next four were against the gods of the land. So they were all against the gods of the land. And then following four were against the gods of of the sky and the and the plagues move from more intense to less intense so what i want to do today is we are going to look at the first nine plagues okay now that's four chapters nine plagues it's a lot okay so this was probably the hardest sermon i prepared in the last like year i was trying to figure out do i go this way do i go that way there's so much good stuff here so i encourage you go back and read it because i'm going to try and take a ten thousand foot view and show what God is doing in all these plagues. Now, from this picture, you notice that there's this pattern. So these three sets of three plagues. So you have the first two plagues. God actually warns Pharaoh what's going to happen. But the third plague, there's no warning. God just does it. And we see that the first three, then the next three, and then the next three. So let's look at the first one. It's a plague of blood. Now, 
what happened was they turned the Nile River into blood. Now, here's a picture of the Nile River. It's the largest river in the world. So if you picture the largest river in the world completely turned into blood. Now, it said it's, it's not just that. This extended to the streams, the canals, the ponds, and the reservoirs, and even in vessels of wood and stone. Now, I don't know exactly what he's implying there, but it seems to me that if someone was carrying like a bucket and a vessel of wood, that at that point that would turn into blood. Now, some liberal scholars would say, here's, here's what happened. They'll go back to the events and say, the Nile, there was this sedentary stuff, this clay that would sometimes turn the river dark and make it look kind of like blood. And so what really happened was there was this really bad flood. And all the sedentary got into it and make the, made, the, made the river kind of become like blood. And then as it flooded, that caused the, the frogs to go out. And then as the frogs went out, they brought disease. And that caused the lice. And that caused the boils. And, and that caused the livestock to die. And, and as this happened, and they, they go through all these logical explanations of how this could have just naturally happened and not really been an act of God. But what we see in the Scripture is God speaks it happens. God speaks, it ends. Time and time again. So I believe this is God using His power. Now, this is crazy. All the fish died, as they would. I mean, we, we had fish for a while, and I hated having fish. I loved, like, fish were really pretty, and, and you know, you go to the store, and you're like, oh, they're so pretty. And then you don't realize that there's this very specific pH balance. You've got to keep the water, and you've got to test the water and find the water. And add the, it's horrible, okay? And you're like, as a parent, you're like, oh, fish are easy, right? No, no, they're not. So obviously when the water turned to blood, that caused all the fish to die. Now, have any of you ever been in one of those open markets in, in like a different country with the fish and that aroma? It's just kind of like, oh. Now imagine this huge river and all the streams that come to it, all the irrigation that goes to all the crops is blood, and all the fish died, and it smelled. And the, so the Egyptians, what they had to do, none of their sources of water were working. They had to dig wells to try and find new water. Now, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the, the Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. And so by removing this lifeblood, it would kind of be like if we were here today and they shut down all the oil... And so then you had no gas, and if you had no gas, then there's no ways to take any vehicles anywhere, which would mean you wouldn't have a way to bring the food to the grocery market, so then you have no food, and, and then that would tank the economy, and so there'd be no money. It would just devastate Egypt. But each of these plagues was an attack on the deities of Egypt to show that Yahweh was more powerful. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Osiris, the god of the Nile. There was also new and happy I don't know, happy wasn't very happy when that happened. But Yahweh was showing, look, you threw the babies into the Nile. Now this first plague attacks the Nile, the very site of one of the worst tragedies in Israel's history. Now just like with the snakes, the magicians were able to replicate this miracle. So the first miracle throws down the staff. The magicians go, okay, we're going to throw down our staffs. They become a snake. Second miracle, turn water into blood. Magicians go, we can do that, and they turn water into blood. Now, Pharaoh's got to be going, okay, magicians, can you turn the, wa- the blood into water? Can you, like, reverse it? They can't do that. 
So we get seven days later, the second one, frogs. The scriptures say the frogs came up and covered the land. They were in the bedrooms, on the beds, even in the ovens and the kitchens. Just imagine frogs everywhere. Now, frogs were really sacred to Egyptians, so it was illegal for them to kill frogs because they worshipped the god Hecate. Now, here's a picture of Hecate, a, a human body and a frog head. Now, Hecate controlled the frog population, and he also, or she also, was responsible for fertility and helping women in childbirth. Now, this is ironic because as the, as the Pharaoh tried to stop the Israelites, what did he do? He tried all these things to keep them from having babies. And what happened? The Israelites grew and grew and grew and grew. So here's a direct confrontation with Hecate. Now here, Pharaoh, again, the magicians are able to make a, comp, uh, a counterfeit. They are able to summon some, some frogs. And so Moses' heart is hardened, but, but he starts to say, okay, maybe I'll, I'll make a compromise. He tells Moses to pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices. And Moses says, when do you want me to pray? And he says, tomorrow. Now, there's a lot of sermons written about that and a lot of different things. I think he's just thinking, you know, okay, not, probably not today, but tomorrow. You can figure out why you think that is. But so Moses prays the next day, and the frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. In our house, one time we had this really bad smell and we couldn't find it. And finally, we opened something up and there was a dead mouse in there. And that one dead mouse made the whole house stink. Now imagine piles of frogs, dead frogs, all over Egypt. On top of lots of dead fish. This was not a pleasant place to live. But once Pharaoh saw that the frogs died... He hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. So then we have the third plague, the plague of the gnats. Now, here, there's no warning. Remember, the first two, there's a warning, and then the third one, there's no warning. And what Aaron did is he he struck the dust to the ground, (coughs) and throughout Egypt, the dust became gnats. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of insect this is. It's a biting, small biting insect, so it could be mosquitoes it could be gnats it could be lice uh it could be fleas we're we're not exactly sure go ahead and go back one you're skipping ahead a little bit um so for the egyptians they had this earth god geb and he was in control of the earth and so moses or pharaoh or aaron sorry struck the earth and the dust became gnats. so you can just imagine walking one day and there's just dust and all of a sudden poof there's gnats or mosquitoes. I kind of think it's mosquitoes. Um, I was in Alaska one time, and it was the worst mosquitoes I've ever had in my entire life. It was so bad. Our video showed me just, you know, flailing away the whole time. And I just can imagine just they're everywhere, all over you. And that would drive me nuts. Uh, when my son, one of my sons was working at a grocery store, he used to bring back the food, the, the, the fruit that was being spoiled, you know. And he'd say, oh, it's good, it's good. They're going to throw it out, but it's good. Go, okay, good. But then our house got infested with fruit gnats, and those things drove me nuts. I had to figure out. Anyways, so this is not a good thing. But this is the first time that the Egyptian magicians can't produce the, the plague. In fact, they say 
This is the finger of God. They were able to do the snakes. They were able to do the blood. They were able to do the frogs. When it came to, the, came to this, they said, this is beyond us. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So we have the end of the first cycle. Now we go back to warnings, and we have flies. Now the Bible says there's swarms of flies everywhere, in the houses, even on the ground. The ground was covered with them. And most scholars think this was an attack on the Egyptian god Kephir, who was the god of the resurrection, who was de- depicted as a beetle. And so some scholars actually think this probably wasn't flies because the word they're used can be used for a number of different insects, that maybe even it was scarab beetles as a direct attack on that god. But whatever it was, it, it, was, it was really difficult. But something different happens in 8. So we're going to actually jump into chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this sign will occur tomorrow. So there's something different that happens here. Now, a lot of people debate, did the Israelites experience the first three, uh, the first three plagues? And, and I tend to think that they did. Um, because there's not a distinction made until here, and then from this point on, the, the Israelites don't experience any of the plagues. But the first three, there's no distinction made for the Israelites. And we have to remember that they had, re- in many ways, rejected God. They had lacked trust in Him. So it makes sense that they would have had to experience the, the Nile and the frogs and, and the, the gnats. But, but at this point, now God could have protected them from all of them, and that's quite possible but we don't see that in the text. So I think at this point, this is when God starts to make this distinction. And so there's all these flies. It says, dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the house of the officials throughout Egypt, and the land was ruined by flies. And if you go to Goshen where the Israelites are, they're just walking around. Life's good, man. No flies. We're good. But in Egypt, it was devastation. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go sacrifice to God here in the land. See, Moses had asked, said, Yahweh says, let my people go. And what Pharaoh is going to do is he's going to start saying, well, why don't you compromise a little bit? Just, just sacrifice here in the land. Don't, don't go into the wilderness a three days journey. Just, just right here. And then later he says, well, you can go a little bit. You can, you can go down a little bit, just, just not very far. But after Moses prayed, the flies left. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Well, let's go back to those nine plagues here. So these first three, uh, the, uh, the Israelites probably experienced, and these last, uh, not, I can't do math, seven, uh, God protected the Israelites from them. And so the next one was, was livestock. Now, this was a terrible plague. It was on the horses and donkeys and camels and cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord protected the livestock of Israel, and none of them died. Now, if you're reading, you may have found yourself confused. Because if you're reading this in the NIV, and you're reading along, and it says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. And they're like, okay, they all died. And then you get to a couple plagues from now. 
and there's more livestock. And you're like, what in the world? I thought they all died. Well, to quote Douglas Stewart, the Hebrew word usually translated all can mean all sorts of or from all over or all over places. So the better translation of this expression would be all sorts of Egyptian livestock died. So as you're thinking through what's happening, you have cows and and cattle and horses and donkeys and sheep and goats and there's this complete devastation where there's all different kinds of livestock from all over Egypt that are dying but God protected the Israelites now for Egyptians this would have been really devastating because many of their gods were depicted as livestock in fact at the Memphis temple there was a live bull that they considered the incarnation of the god Apis and they worshiped bulls which is probably one of the reasons why when the Israelites doubted God they built what a golden calf they were going back to their roots so for the Egyptians to lose their livestock while the Israelites did not would have been a slap in the face to the Egyptian gods and a slap in the face to Pharaoh well next we have the plague of boils and I found some really horrific image of boils on the internet, and I know some people are squeamish, so I just went back to this picture. Now there's, again, no warning. So we have two warnings and then no warning. So we have that pattern stay. Now Moses took handfuls of soot from the furnace. Now this is really interesting. Um, if you remember, when they made the work harder for the Israelites, what did they do? They, they wouldn't even give them straw to make their bricks. But where would they go to make bricks? They go to the furnace. Moses takes soot from the furnace, throws it in the air, and the dust comes down and all the people get boils. Now this plague is so significant that the magicians can't even come before Moses and they don't come for the rest of the time because they're so sick and so miserable from the boils they're not even able to come back when Pharaoh summons them. Now, there are many Egyptian gods of healing, Imhotep, Sekhmet, and others. And the magicians that got their powers from the gods couldn't even heal themselves. Now, there's a change that happens here. Now, ten times in this passage, it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart. But then there's a change here, and it says the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. So there's this pattern where Pharaoh hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart ten times. But then there's a shift, and now the Lord is actually actively hardening his heart. Later in Romans 9, we see that God prepared Pharaoh for this very moment. And so Pharaoh is accountable because his actions led to this point. So the seventh plague is the plague of hail. Now we're going to read a little bit of this um, because it's, it's got some different elements. God tells Pharaoh in verse 15, of Exodus 9, for my now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. So God could have just said, I don't need ten plagues. I'll just do one. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. God was accomplishing something. He wanted the is Israelites to know who he was. He wanted the, the Egyptians to know who he was. But not only that, he wanted the whole world to know who he was. He continues and says, Give an order. Oh, did I miss that one? 619. Give an order now. I missed it. Sorry. Oh, you 17 is before 19. Go, go ahead and go to 19. Sorry. 
Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has been brought and is still out in the field and they will die. God warns Pharaoh and says, look, I'm going to bring this horrible hail. Worse than anything you've ever seen. Worse than anything that's ever happened in Egypt. And so if you believe, just bring in your people, bring in your livestock and they'll be safe. Now, this is really interesting, too, this part of the story. In verse 20, it says this. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. So there's this group now of Egyptians that have seen what God is doing. And they've put their faith and they say, I fear the Lord. And in fact, we see later as they leave Egypt in Exodus 12 that when Israel left Egypt, a mixed multitude went up with them. So there's these Egyptians that believe in Yahweh because of what he's done, and they leave with the Israelites. So it says the hail destroyed everything, the people and the animals, everything growing in the fields, the trees, etc. But yet in Goshen there was no hail. So if you can imagine standing on the edge of Goshen and looking out and seeing this massive hail come down in Egypt, and you're just chilling. You're safe. God was demonstrating his power over the gods of Egypt. Now, this was so devastating that Pharaoh repented. He said, this time I've sinned. That's an amazing, amazing thing for him to say. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Now, that seems like a good deal. But after the thunder and hail stopped, he hardened his heart again and wouldn't let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs among them, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. God had a purpose in this, that they would know that he is Yahweh. Now, we don't know a specific Egyptian God that was confronted because there's too many to choose from. They had gods over the sky, gods over moisture, gods over wind, gods over the earth. But in all that, again, God was proving he was more powerful. Now, the eighth plague is the locusts. Now, this actually may have been a few months later. We don't know the time frame of all these things. But during the, during the hailstorm, it says in the text that the flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. So it seems like there's a, a time frame and then these are going to ripen. And then Moses warns Pharaoh about the locusts. And then Pharaoh... After the warning, he says, all right, well, you can go worship the Lord, but just the men. Leave the women and children, your belongings, everything else. You just, just go with the men. And Moses says, nope, that's not good enough. And so the locusts covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields, the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on the tree or plant in all of Egypt. Pharaoh again summoned Moses and asked for forgiveness, but as soon as the locusts were gone, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now Mim was the god of the crops. Isis, the goddess of life, was over the flax. 
Nepri was the god of the grain. Anubis was the god of fields. Sinahem was a protector from pests. No matter who you pick, they all failed. Now remember, this is an agricultural society. So now they've lost all their animals. So now they have no meat to eat. They've lost all their vegetables. So they have no food to cook. They've lost all their fruit. Their economy is utterly devastated. In fact, the leaders are going to Pharaoh and say, just, just let them go. Like, we had enough. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So, with no warning, we have the ninth, the, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Now, there was darkness all over Egypt. Now, this was the hardest slide for me to pick. I had to work really hard to find a picture that just showed it. But it, the scriptures say it was darkness that could be felt. Over the summer, we went on vacation to the Tukalichi, uh Caves. They're in towns in Tennessee. And they go to the deepest part of the caves, and there they say, make sure all your phones are off, put away, and we're going to turn off the lights. And you're in the middle of this cave, and they turn off the lights, and it is utter darkness. You couldn't even see your hand in front of you. And it was crazy how dark it was. And the scriptures say this is a darkness that could be felt. And it says that no one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places they lived. That's crazy. I, I kind of picture like, you know, one of those shows where there's like dome and like inside the dome there's light and outside there's complete darkness. Now the Egyptians worshipped the sun uh, Amon-Ra, or Amon-Re, was the king of all Egyptian gods. And you might recognize that name because the lion's best wide receiver is Amon-Ra St. Brown. That's his name. And his dad actually named all of his kids after Egyptian gods because he wanted them to be physical specimens. So his nickname is the sun god because that's what that means in Egypt. So Pharaoh was known as the son of Ra, the incarnation of amon So not only was God more powerful than the king of all Egyptian gods, God was more powerful than his son, Pharaoh. Now the darkness was so overwhelming that Pharaoh summoned Moses and told him, the women and children can go worship too, but just not the animals. I love Moses' response. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We won't even leave one hoof behind. When we go... We're taking everything. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now you may read that and again go, see another contradiction. Later it says Moses or Pharaoh summoned Moses after the tenth plague. Well, there's two different ways that it could be. One, uh, the Hebrew doesn't require this to be an account that's like saying, okay, I'm never going to see you again. It could be, look, when this is all over, peace, I'm out of here. You're not going to have to deal with me anymore. Or more likely, uh, the, the word used for summon can also be sent. Uh, it's possible Pharaoh sent an emissary. He didn't want to see Moses. He just sent an emissary to Moses Aaron and said, get out of here. I think that's probably what likely happened. All right, so... Whew, take a deep breath. All right, so we had all, all nine plagues. But what's God doing in this? I want to pause because it can be easy when we read these stories to be so familiar with them. We're like, wow, that's a lot of plagues. And if you can imagine 
being an Egyptian. I mean, I, I can't ima- imagine the devastation. You know, you're just a, a normal Egyptian, and and not, you lose your food, your livestock. They all die. You lose. You don't have access. You don't have a way to buy food. You don't have a way to go fishing. You don't have a way to get food. You have no food. Lose your job. All these things are gone. Complete devastation. Now imagine the Israelites. They've been mistreated and slaved, and yet here they see all this stuff going, and God's protecting them. And they're starting to go, okay, I get it. All those other gods that many of us have worshipped during our time in Egypt, they, they don't stand up to Yahweh. So I want to look at, at three things that God is doing. First, God wants us to know who He is. God wants us to know who He is. Seven times in this narrative, Yahweh says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. By this you will know that I am Yahweh. Verse, chapter 9, verse 16 says, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth and that you may know that I am the Lord. The Israelites needed this reassurance. They had doubts. They had fears. They didn't remember God's promises and what he did. And God said, I am the Lord and demonstrated it. The Egyptians had been, had been desecrating God by their mistreatment of the Israelites and worshiping all these false deities. And God said, I am the Lord. And there were Egyptians when they saw that and heard Yahweh say, I am the Lord, said, okay. I believe. I'll bring my cattle in. I know the Lord will protect me. And they went with the Israelites. Now, God has given us that same task to go out into all the world and tell the world the Lord is Yahweh, sovereign ruler of all things. Romans 10 says it this way Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have this mission. Whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. But it says, how can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The primary purpose of missions is worship. It's to make God's name known throughout the whole earth. Other people would come to know who He is and worship Him. That His glory would be proclaimed. That people would experience the true life that we get. Sometimes I talk to people and they're like, I just need a sign. And I'm like, you're missing it. You're pursuing all this other stuff. And you find yourself lacking and wanting. And Jesus is here. It says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He's the giver of true life. He's the giver of true satisfaction. So not only does God want us to know who He is, Satan doesn't want us to know who God is. We see it with the, with the miracle workers, the magicians. They're able to produce these counterfeit miracles a little bit. Not quite to the extent, but it's enough to let Pharaoh harden his heart. The Egyptians are worshiping all these counterfeit gods. Gods of the earth, gods of the water, gods gods of the sky, gods of the weather, gods of fertility. All these different things. Thinking these gods will save us. And and Satan wants us 
to try and find these other avenues, these other things that aren't truly Yahweh. The first commandment is that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is that you're not to make any images, not to make any idols. Now, in our culture, we don't have, you know, at least I don't know. I've never been a Meyer and seen like an idol that I could buy and bow down to in my house. I don't see that. Our culture is not that. We don't have those prevalent idols just everywhere. But we do have things that we give priority to over God. If you think of worship as worship, of ascribing God more worth than anything else in our life, ascribing Him the most worth, then it's easy for us to have idols. Easy for us to seek satisfaction outside of God and His purposes. Easy for, for, for us to pursue material wealth and, 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 and all these different things to try and find satisfaction when God is offering true satisfaction. So God wants us to know who He is. Satan doesn't want us to know who God is. And third, God wants us to know who we are. When Moses asked God, when he was trying to go back against God, say, don't send me, what did he say? First he said, who am I? Then he said, who are you? Those are the two most important questions we can ask. Why did God save the Israelites? If you're reading the text, maybe you saw it. It was there six times. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or some translations say, so that they may serve me. See, God didn't only save us from something. He saved us for something. Ephesians 2, it's by grace we're saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. The best thing about serving the Lord is we can have a purpose. So often, working with teenagers and young adults through the years, there was this big question, what, what am I going to do? You know, when I graduate from high school, it's the biggest question in life. You know, what's, what's my job going to be? What, and they're searching for something with deep meaning. And they sometimes find themselves working in menial jobs, and they, they find themselves frustrating, like, what am I really accomplishing? What am I really doing? But I try to point them back to this simple thing. God creates for something more. And that something more isn't necessarily a better job. It's not necessarily a job that fits our personality. That something more is worshiping Yahweh. See, when we find our purpose through God, any job that we have can be a wonderful job because we get to serve Him when we're doing it. We find our purpose through Yahweh. He gives us purpose for every aspect of our life. God wants us to know who we are, but who we are saved, redeemed, adopted people of God that are loved by the Creator of the universe and given power to do His purposes. Two last brief points that we see in the text. First, repentance. Repentant words don't necessarily equal a repentant heart. Moses, or, sorry, Pharaoh repented four times, but as soon as the consequences were removed, uh, he recanted. Avoiding consequences is not true repentance. Sometimes people repent because they don't want to experience the consequences, but that's not what true repentance is. Repentance is turning from God, turning from your sin and turning to God. And another one, a sign doesn't guarantee our faith. After, after Jesus fed the 5,000, he went across the lake, and all these people were there. And Jesus says, look, look you, you don't really, what you really want is you want free bread. 
You don't really believe in me. You're just coming here because you want another sign because you want more bread. A lot of people want signs. Psalm 78, 32 says, In spite of this, they kept sinning. In spite of the wonders, they did not believe. Signs won't prove anything. So this week, I want you to evaluate three things. Uh, this is their takeaway. I mean, write these things down. I'll, I'll leave it up on the screen as, a, as they come up. First, is there, are there any sins you need to repent of? Are there things that you've been just avoiding the consequences of but not truly giving the Lord? Second, is God holding the first position in your heart? Are you ascribing Him more worth than anything else? And then lastly, who can you tell about our great God? The purpose of these plagues were, were twofold. One, he wanted to let the people go so they could serve him, and he wanted to make his name known. So as we go out to where we live and work and play, may we serve the Lord, worship him, and may we make his name known. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder. The flurry of words, Lord, all, all the different different plagues you enacted to make your name known, Lord, we can be so familiar with the story. We can be so familiar with these things that we lose sight of how powerful you are. All these counterfeit gods that the Egyptians had were no match for your power. And, and yet we find ourselves looking to counterfeits instead of you. Lord, there are times where we seek to make our name great and our name known rather than making your name known and your name great. Lord, there are times where we seek to find a purpose in our life, hoping to find it through work or family or relationships or other things when you have given us a great purpose. And Lord, we just pray that this week, in the midst of all of our stuff, that we'll stop and pause and reflect that you are God and there is no other. And that you sent your son down to die for us so we can have life and we can have a relationship with the sovereign creator of all things. Lord, thank you for that amazing truth. In your name we pray. Amen.